Welcome everybody to the Diecast Movie Podcast. For this episode, we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Take it away, Dad. Hi everybody. Before we start the interview with Michael Uslin, um, something that's happened recently was the passing of Nehemiah Persaw, who I had the pleasure of being able to interview back in episode 83. I just want to say our condolences to his friends and family for his passing at 102 years of age. Um, I've if you've never heard of Nehemiah Persoff, he's a great character actor. You should listen to the interview. has a lot of great stories that he was telling. Um, lived a wonderful life. And again, our condolences to his family and friends. Now, I hope you enjoy this interview with Michael Uslin, Batman's Batman. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. And today I'm joined with... Michael Uslin, who's a producer, writer, and you're probably wondering, who is he? He's the producer of Batman. Batman Begins, The Batman, you're noticing the theme, but also Swamp Thing, Constantine, and a lot of other things. And he's also written two different memoirs. So if you really want to know about the man, I recommend both. The Boy Who Loved Batman and Batman's Batman, a memoir from Hollywood, Land of Bilk and Money. I love that title. How are you doing today, Michael? <laughs> I am doing great. Great. Happy to be here, Stephen. Oh, I'm glad you're able to take the time out of your day to join me because I'm a big comic book fan. I love a whole bunch of different heroes, and Batman is one of them. And uh, I know you grew up reading comic books of all different types. Um, besides Batman, which we know is is probably number one, I would, I'm just guessing. What are some of your other favorites that you grew up reading? Oh my God. Well, first you have to understand that I am, um, yeah, I'm probably the definition of a comic book geek. Um, I've been a fanboy since, well, my mom said I learned to read from comics before I was four. Um, by the time I graduated high school, I had over 30,000 comic books dating back to 1936. I went to the first Comic-Con ever held. Um, I was one of the early members of comic book fandom when it was organizing and wrote for the early fanzines. And um, one of the great things when I was growing up is that was an era when most of the comic book companies were in New York City. And I lived about an hour outside of New York City. So it turned out, as I learned more as a, as a fan, that the creators, the artists, the writers, the editors, all lived either in New Jersey, Manhattan, or Long Island. So um, my dad worked six days a week. And he would often give up his Sunday to drive me to their homes where I would arrange to interview them for half a day or a full day. And um, through that, I not only met them, but I got the entire history of the comic book industry direct from the horse's mouth, from the people who created the heroes, who created comic books, who created DC and Marvel and all these other companies. Um, it was an incredible, incredible first-hand education to get. Um, but, but that's kind of my background. So I read and collected everything. Um, you know, I probably started out with things like Sugar and Spike, uh, the Harvey comics like Little Max, Casper, um, Richie Rich, un until the day came when I realized, oh my God, he's Donald Trump in short pants and I stopped reading it. Um, I would graduate on to Archie, um, but I also read the Dell and Gold Key comics, the Disney comics, the Walter Lance comics, the Looney Tunes comics, 
I read and collected everything, classics illustrated. Um, I wasn't addicted to just superheroes. I read war comics, westerns, humor, mystery, adventure, science fiction. Um, I was all over the map, and, and I couldn't get enough. I was the same way growing up. I loved reading comic books. My mom used to, I think my gateway one was like Casper, Richie Rich, Archie's um, comic books and those kind of things. And then, of course, Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, all, all the ones there. But I also liked House of Mystery, House of Secrets. And I would also get other brands like Charlton and go with, you know, um, um, the Blue Demon, uh, not Blue Demon, um, Blue Devil and um, those kind of things. And to, just go different ones. I'm sorry, the Blue Beetle. That's the one I was trying to remember off the top of my head. And it's just, it was just a great time to be growing up when you had a wide variety of things to read. Oh, it was great. And those little comic book companies, my God. Yeah, they, what they turned out wasn't always good, but it was fun. Um, how, how could we forget Mighty Comics with Flyman and the Mighty Crusaders? Um, ACG, Herbie. And the Magic Man and Nemesis, Nucla, and the Fab Four uh, over at Dell, um, Magnus Robot Fighter. Um, you know, for God's sake, that was gorgeous Russ Manning stuff uh, over at Gold Key, and um, and and that was my life. And I was just saying, you took that life and you're able to mold it into other things. And I did bring up both names of both your books. The boy who loved the boy who loved Batman and um, Batman's Batman. Just let listeners know both of these are available in hardcover. I'm, I know Batman's Batman's available in hardcover, paperback, and both of them are available in audiobook. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. They're uh, available now on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, etc., etc., etc. And the audiobook versions, which I narrate, um, they're available through Blackstone and also through you know, all the ordinary channels you would think of. Um, and it's great. The, the Boy Who Loved Batman is the story of how, as a kid in my 20s, I raised some money privately. I went to DC Comics and bought the rights to Batman when I was a kid in my 20s. And then I set out to make dark and serious Batman movies, which from the day I bought the rights till we got our first movie made in 1989, took me 10 years because I was turned down by every single studio in Hollywood. They thought I was crazy. It was the worst idea they ever heard. Um, so that was a human endurance contest. That was an odyssey. Uh, the second book, Batman's Batman, really is about my 45 years to date adventures in Hollywood and New York, uh, working on movies, TV, animation, comics, and um, the hits and misses, mostly the misses. Um, things that I worked on for up to 10 years that ultimately wilted on the vine. And it, it's just jam-packed with stories. And it talks about the 13 P's of producing and what it takes to be a producer in Hollywood, which could be the land of milk and honey, but it could also be the land of milk and money. And I've experienced both. And I think that's what people sometimes forget. They, they see all the hits and they don't realize all these projects that you have, all these pots you got cooking. And not all of them are going to be able to get all the ingredients they need to be able to, to be served as a meal, so to speak. So like you get them on, sometimes you get them real close and the, the waiter trips on the way to the table and boom, it goes and there it goes everything. And you're just like, ah, it'll never happen again. And I think that's the thing that 
people don't realize is all this working behind the scenes. They look at it as, oh, he's an overnight success, a 10-year uh, overnight success. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's if you look at over my career, I'm probably I'm probably batting 400. Now, that means six out of every 10 projects that I set up and work on don't ultimately happen, which can be devastating and frustrating. And if you don't make frustration your friend, and if you don't find a way to deal with it and understand that in, in my industry, it's not a war. It's, it's, you, you don't set out to fight your battles for your projects every day. It's a siege. And you need to dig a foxhole and put on a helmet and hunker down for the long haul. And the most important decision you can make is who you allow into that foxhole to watch your back. Um, that, that is kind of what it's all about. You know, I have people tell me, oh, my God, Michael, in baseball, you would be a superstar. Everything's relative. <laughs> and uh, the ones that I didn't get to bring to fruition are agonizing. Um, but you learn how to deal with that. And I was going to say, in your foxhole, early on, you had um, Benjamin Melliker, who was really like the, the grizzled veteran. You know, if you're looking into the war movie thing, he would be the sergeant that seen it all, done it all. You're the young guy coming in, and he takes you and shows you the ropes and gets you through the battles and helps you understand what this whole thing is about. It's true. Ben was my dad's age. Ben began his career in late 1939 at MGM, which was not a bad year at MGM or in the movie industry generally. Um, ben worked his way up to become general counsel. He was in charge of their antitrust division and actually appeared before the Supreme Court during the Paramount Consent Decree of 1948 and the hearings uh, where MGM had a, uh, Lowe's Incorporated had to divest themselves of the theaters. Um, ben went on to become the sole executive vice president at MGM. All divisions reported to him. He was chairman of their film selection committee, committee on the parent board. And Ben put together a few movies you may have heard of. If you are under 40 uh, and you haven't seen these, put every one of them on your list to see. Um, ben Hur, Dr. Zhivago, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Gigi and all those musicals of that period. Um, truly an amazing man. He, along with the other heads of the studios back circa 1964, formed the Motion Picture Association of, uh, of America. Um, it was amazing. He was a legend. And Ben was with me in the trenches and active until literally the day he passed away, just shy of his 105th birthday. Amazing man, an amazing life. Cause if, if people read the book, you'll find out how much exactly um, he was with your life and how he helped guide you. And I think one of the things I noticed something negative would happen and he would always say, well, you know, I, I forgot the exact wording, but it was like, okay, so this means we can't, and then like find a positive out of it. Like, what can we do? To, what can we do from this? You know, he was always looking yeah, at the ben, twist. He always did that. Um, for Ben, I can sum it up three ways. First of all, he gave me the title for my new book, Batman's Batman, was actually a title that came from Ben. Um, 
there were two critical things Ben taught me. Um, number one, he said, Michael, as you start and grow in this industry, the only thing you get to take with you when you die and leave behind is your good name. So no matter what characters we come across in our adventures and misadventures, um, it's all about honor and integrity. Number two was there was a moment in time, Stephen, where I, I don't normally talk about it, but I, I did in the book. Um, around the time of Batman and Robin and Catwoman, which were movies I was not at all in favor of and wanted them stopped, didn't want to see them happen. And of course, I lost that battle. Um, and that's okay. But I'll never forget when the script to Batman and Robin came in, I was so upset and I threw it across the room, <laughs> hit the wall, pages went flying. And Ben came over to me and said, Michael, when things are dark, when things look bad, when things start to crumble, when you're at your lowest point, you have to say, this is the best thing that could have happened to me because, and then you fill in the blank. He said, it works like a charm every single time. Try it. So reluctantly, I said, okay, this is the best thing that could have happened to me because... Um, Somebody's going to get bit on the tuchus from this. And if they get bit hard enough, then the next time I'm going to get what I want, which is once again a return to the darkness uh, and dignity of a serious Batman uh, along the lines of what Bill Finger, Bob Kane created in 1939 is embellished by Jerry Robinson and others. Um, he said, yeah, very good, very good. And of course, that's exactly what happened. And But for the trauma of those films, I don't think we ever would have gotten a Christopher Nolan. And in retrospect, it was worth the trauma in order to get to Christopher Nolan. Yeah, it's, it's like a, the Batman's almost like a phoenix rising from the ashes. You know, sometimes it has to burn and then come back up. Hopefully it doesn't have... Hopefully that won't happen again where it has to burn. I mean, right now it's, I saw the Batman. It's, it's flying high. He's flying high. <laughs> uh, I am so thrilled. And, you know, let's give credit where credit is due. We have had filmmakers now with the genius of Matt Reeves who had a vision for this character, an understanding of the character and its history in the comics. And, uh, and a passion for it, and were able to execute that vision. And there's no way you could use anything but the appellation of genius with Tim Burton and Anton first on our first Batman movie, uh, for Chris Nolan, for Todd Phillips on Joker, for Chris Miller and Phil Lord on Lego Movie and Lego Batman, for Matt Reeves, um, and, and let's not forget, um, and they so don't get the spotlight the way they deserve. Bruce Tim, Paul Dini, Eric Radomski, Alan Burnett, Andrea Romano, Kevin Conroy, um, my dear friend, Mark Hamill. Um, these folks deserve the spotlight for the incredible, amazing work they've done on everything Batman animated, um, culminating 
in my mind's eye with Mystery of the, Fan, uh, the, the Mask of the Phantasm, which arguably is one of the best Batman stories ever told in the media. So um, I always like to mention that, but also we can't forget all the people who got Batman here, which is 85 years of comics, and all the artists, writers, editors, colorists, inkers who contributed to that, who have somehow found a way for over 80 years to get audiences coming back every single week to see what's going to happen next. That's absolutely unbelievable. Exactly. And I look at it because, I mean, I know there's been tons of people that have played Batman, whether by, whether by voice and appearance, and everybody has their favorite one and all that stuff. I grew up watching James Bond movies and Doctor Who TV series, and there's different doctors in there, and there's different James Bonds, and I really don't have a personal favorite, not even with the Batman, because I look at each one brings something different to it, and each director, each script, and it, it, it's some people, that's going to be their favorite Batman. That's fine with me. You know, it might not, be, might not be the one that really rocks my boat, but it's one I could see where they were going, and I can see what they were trying to do, and sometimes it's, I don't blame the actors as much as what the script they're given and what direction they're given and stuff like that. And, uh, but I enjoy, I think there's, you have so many different bad men out there for everybody's taste that somebody's going to be able to find something that they like. That the character is so wonderful because it'd be used so many different ways. When I speak at comic cons and universities in particular, all around the world, um, there's one question that almost comes up every single time during Q and a, and that is, Michael, um, who is the one true Batman? And it's the easiest question in the world to answer. The one true Batman is the Batman you were first introduced to when you were 8 or 12 or 16, whether it was a comic book, a cartoon, a movie, a game. That is your one true Batman. And just like the comics have shown, the comics over the decades have shown every iteration of Batman from one extreme to the other. When I was a little kid growing up in the 50s and 60s, my Batman at that time was the guy who sometimes was Bat-Genie, Bat-Robot, um, Super Batman, uh, you know, all this crazy, crazy stuff. Um, and then when Julie Schwartz took over with uh, Detective 327 and the new look Batman, then that was my Batman. Until Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams restored the darkness to the comic books then, excuse me, that was my Batman. Well, wait a minute, then there was Frank Miller in 86. I mean, we could go on and on and on. Um, but it's kind of neat to think that Batman grows and changes with us. And if there's anything I've found, it's that the reason that I was so attracted to Batman and became the boy who loved Batman, more so than Superman, ultimately, Hulk, Spidey, was because he's human. That, that's the propelling Thing about him, um, because he's human, every one of us can project ourselves onto him. We identify with him. Um, I got a big kick when Dark Knight came out, and I would turn on Fox News to find all the right-wing political pundits claiming the Dark Knight as their guy. And then you switch on MSNBC, and every left-wing political pundit was claiming, "Oh no." Dark Knight, that's our guy. And completely different politics. But you have the luxury of projecting your politics, your philosophies, 
your identities onto Batman and he becomes yours. And I don't think there's another superhero that does that. I don't think so. You know, and, and that kind of thing. And, and that's the one part that's great about the character, the way it was written. And I think, I think the key thing with Tim Burton's brilliance was realizing that a lot of people had not realized prior to that, that the key to Batman is Bruce Wayne and how to develop that character to get it going. Because a lot of people just want to show the Batman, the Batman, but it's really the two entities, so to speak. There's Bruce Wayne and there's Batman. I know people argue who is true. Is, is Bruce Wayne really the secret identity of Batman? Is Batman really the secret identity of Bruce Wayne? And all that kind of stuff. I, I really don't dwell in too much in the, the psychology of it all. I just enjoy it as the, how he works the system because Bruce Wayne is the one that was wronged and swore that oath and wants to be the, the spirit that helps solve crime in the city, you know, for that kind of stuff. And I think, so I think Bruce Wayne is Batman as a means to an end to get those things done. So I think they're both the same person, but I know people can read into it a lot of things. What do you think? Well, I, I'll go in at a slightly deeper level with that, but let me start by saying you nailed the whole thing. Uh, Tim Burton had what I always call the big idea. And Tim Burton's genius big idea was the idea that made all of these movies and all the Marvel movies possible. He said to me, look, if we're going to do the world's first ever serious and dark comic book superhero movie. He said, Michael, this movie cannot be about Batman. And that's when I like fell into the ground. He says, no, it's gotta be about Bruce Wayne. And he said, there is a massive global audience that has never read a comic book in their lives. And they have to find a way to suspend their disbelief and buy into this without giving unintentional laughs every time the actor puts on a costume. He said, that's why I want Michael Keaton. Because with Michael Keaton, we can create a portrayal of Bruce Wayne so driven to the point of being psychotic that audiences will go, oh yeah, that's a guy who gets dressed up as a bat. And he said, and that's what's so essential about it. Now, it is clear to me that that big idea changed Hollywood forever and changed the world culture's perception of comic book superheroes and ultimately supervillains. Um, I believe that the Iron Man movies should be called Tony Stark. The Spider-Man movies, in reality, should be called Peter Parker. And that's all due to Tim Burton and his big idea. He had a corollary to his big idea, and that was world building. He said, from the opening frames of our movie, Gotham City is the third most important character in this film. Because if audiences don't first believe in Gotham City, they won't be able to believe in Batman and Joker. And he was absolutely right about it. And then it was the next genius, Anton First, our production designer, who took that and from that created Gotham City the Batmobile, the whole look of that first picture. And to this very day, every genre movie that opens, including this coming weekend, is influenced and impacted by the work, uh, by the vision of Tim and the designs of Anton. Absolutely no question about it. 
Yeah, Tim Bur- Tim Burton. I I appreciate and enjoy a lot of his movies. Some of them don't hit me all the way as, as I would hope they would. But not everybody's going to please everybody all the time. But I see where he's going, and I appreciate taking chances. Because if you don't take chances, then everything gets to be boring and rather rather rote or the same. And I like how the Batman franchise, in a sense, as we said, chances were taken, and some of them you already mentioned, didn't really go well at all, <laughs> um, so to speak. I think wrong choices were made there and that kind of stuff. But the thing is, is it led to other things that were positive coming from it. And I think that's the, the great part about it. Um, speaking of Batman 1989 version, uh, how much input did you have in it? I know you, you really fought, and for those who read the book, you fought for 10 years to make sure your vision was there because you got you had people that would turn you down, turn you down, turn you down. And one said, "Oh, let's do the Wayne Pal Zap, you know, type Batman," and you were like, "New," no. <laughs> until you got the closest to the version that you wanted, which you know Tim Burton was able to deliver. But after they took over, how much input did you have once once that? Oh, it it was great on on the process of uh, getting that first picture made. Um, it started with a 17-page single-space memo, which is um, the vision statement that I started this whole thing with. Then it was a matter of, well, you know, who's going to write this? Um, who, who's going to direct this? Uh, you know, we started with Tom Mankiewicz uh, writing, and Tom and I worked on a weekly basis together, and he had zillions of questions. I was continually indoctrinating him with information and comic books from my collection uh, so that he could understand uh, every single thing about Batman going in. And Tom was my first choice uh, for our first writer. Um, Because at that point in time, the only thing we had to compare in terms of blockbuster movies was Bond. And to me, Tom was, you know, one of the two great Bond writers. Um, Guy Hamilton had directed Goldfinger, and we were looking at Guy Hamilton. Ben talked to Ken Adam, who was the production designer on um, Bond, whom Ben had worked with at MGM. Um, So, you know, that was like the frame of mind starting out back in 1979. Um, Then I remember, you know, getting the call from the studio, and they said, uh, got this guy who comes out of Disney Animation. And he's doing some great stuff for us right now. We want you. To, we want to set up a screening for you. You got to see this. It's the fine cut of a movie called Pee Wee's Big Adventure. And I came out of that movie and I said, "My God, I've never seen such a creative um, mix of direction and art direction in my life. I would love to meet this guy." So they set up a series of three lunches for me with Tim. Uh, objective number one was to see if I agreed with them that he would be the right guy to do this. If that was the case, objective number two, to give him the right material to see as the basis for it, and primary objective number three, to keep him away from all the dopey stuff and not let him even see it. So um, once again, I went into my collection and um, I wound up giving Tim... I guess it was after the, it was either after the first or the second lunch. I gave him the original run of Detective Comics um, up till Robin's introduction in number 38, um, Batman 1, which introduced Joker and Catwoman, 
Then I gave him the O'Neill, Neil Adams stuff from the 70s and the Steve Englehart, Marshall Rogers stuff from the same era. Uh, in addition, I gave him my favorite Batman story of all time, which was Detective 439, a story called Night of the Stalker. It remains my favorite Batman story to this very day. And without issuing too much of a spoiler, Batman does not say one single word in this story. And there is not one thought balloon coming from him. Yet, I believe it is the most emotional, emotionally impactful story of Batman ever written. Um, so, you know, that, that was my way of quality control, you know, if you want to say that. And then it was reading every treatment and every draft and doing the comments and, uh, and everything that went into it. It was um, talking to the different, uh, at different times, there were different directors under consideration. Richard Rush was one very briefly. Uh, Joe Dante, um, Ivan Reitman, uh, my God, 10 years. So, uh, and Joe Dante, I had known, holy moly. When I started out in the business, I was a motion picture production attorney at United Artists, which at that time was one of the major studios. And I just started, I was fresh out of law school. So they weren't ready to give me a big motion picture to be in charge of all the legal business financial affairs of. So they gave me to cut my teeth a Roger Corman production that they were doing. And it was this little movie called Piranha. And I got to work with, first of all, Paul, Paul Bartel, who was this brilliant creative madman. Uh, and Paul and I worked on another project together later on. It was this young writer loaded with talent named John Sales. John Davison as the, uh, the line producer, Jeff Sheckman as a producer. Um, the PA was Gail Ann Hurd. Um, and then Joe Dante's first directing. And the special effects department, which had a budget of like <laughs> next to nothing to work on, that was that guy. I'm trying to remember his name. I don't know whatever happened to him. Let me think. Jim Cameron. Um, so it was, it was an interesting, it was an interesting first picture to get started with, but it gave me a little history with Joe. I was wondering if you're going to bring up Piranha. That was just, that was just, you know, getting to work with that, you know, the grassroots. I mean, you're cutting your teeth with Roger Corman, who's too basically practically started everybody. It seems like in Hollywood back in the day, I mean, everybody went for Corman, you know, one way or another. And it looks like you did too, and, you know, breaking, cutting your teeth. I did through osmosis. <clears throat> the next picture I got was Battle Beyond the Stars. Um, so yeah, I, I, I got a lot out of that. And then finally, the studio was ready to give me my first bigger name project uh, to, to head up, which was great. I just find that Corman, Corman's everywhere. Uh, before I get too deep into the Batman stuff, one thing I'm, I'm jumping over, and I want to go back to Swamp Thing. Because I yeah, love, 40th anniversary. it's the 40th anniversary and I love Swamp Thing. You know, that first one that came out in 82 and you were, I think on the set and on the, not on the set, but on the, um, the site where you're doing it. But that seemed to be a production that was very interesting. You had venomous snakes, you had gators, you had heat. I mean, you had a little, you had your own little thing going on besides the normal production. This was the first movie I ever produced back in the days when I was line producing. 
So I was in charge of the set every single day and riding herd over it, learning as I was going, I might add. First thing I learned is we had a million nine to actually make the movie and we should have had 19 million. So that <laughs> there's problem number one. Um, there were so many great things about it and so many horrific challenges to it. Uh, I, between my two books, I have told many stories of what went on in the making of, uh, of Swamp Thing. And um, the best thing that came out of it was my friendship with Wes Craven. Um, I adored Wes Craven. He was scholarly, erudite, um, mild-mannered, brilliant, creative. Um, he, he was a pal, and, uh, and I miss him. Um, and, my God, Adrienne Barbeau. I, I think we used her stunt double in, like, two little brief moments. Otherwise, she was in the, in the actual ferocious swamp herself. She was doing the running. She was doing the jumping. Um, there was nothing you could ask this woman to do that she just didn't respond to. Dick DeRock. My God. And we were in horrible heat and humidity. And he was encased in that suit. Um, what he had to endure and always endured with a smile and a good positive spirit and wanted to be a role model for kids. Um, you know, we were so, there were so many great, great people. Ray Wise, I mean, I could, I could go on through the cast and the crew, and, but there were some memorable, memorable stories that came out of it. Um, I want you to share one, if you don't mind, the sure. opossum. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so everybody, everybody told me I was getting the experience of 11 movies producing this one. We had child actors. We had animals in, in the thing. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the, my last day on the set, we were at the edge of the swamp. I'm in a conversation with Wes Craven, and everybody had to have snake boots on. There were coral snakes, there, and at that time, they didn't have a cure for the venom. Um, there were copperheads, cottonmouths. And I'm talking to Wes, and out of a tree drops a rattlesnake about two feet from me. And I remember turning to Wes and saying, this is no place for a Jewish boy from New Jersey. I am leaving. I <laughs> <laughs> got the hell out of there. We had two guys on the set with guns. We had to have paramedics and Red Cross uh, on the set. So we had a big scene coming up. And our animal wrangler, who was out of Los Angeles, um, knew we needed a trained opossum. So um, the scene was coming up, and I said to him, you know, well, where's the opossum? We're going to need him this week. He said, well, he's in Los Angeles. I said, well, we need him here. He said, no, no, it's, it's okay. They're putting him on a flight tonight uh, to Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, he said, would you like to go with me to the airport to pick him up? And I said, yeah, I'll take the ride with you. So we go that night to Charleston Airport, and we're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're waiting, and um, there's no opossum. And can't figure out what's going on. We go to the baggage claim, and they come back, and they say, well, we've got a bit of a problem. You know, the opossum was in the baggage hold and did not survive the trip. So... Um, a, we were in mourning over our little opossum, and then I'm faced with, as first-time producer, the problem, well, what do you do? One of your animal stars is now dead, 
you've got this scene coming up in a couple of days. Now what? So I turned to him. He goes, don't worry. Um, we have one more trained opossum. I said, well, what are you going to do? You're going to put him on a plane in the hold of the plane and then what? We'll get another one dead. And he goes, well, what else, what else could we possibly do? So this is where I learned how you produce a picture. So I, at that time, which was 1981, I paid Delta Airlines for a first class seat. And we put the apartment in first class. I can't imagine who he was sitting next to. Uh, what happened with that? But I flew in first class, and um, the next night we go to Charleston Airport, and um, we're there waiting for the flight, and no opossum comes out. So I'm going, what is going on? So we go to the baggage claim. They can't find them. They can't find the opossum. So to make a long story short, about an hour later, they locate the opossum because this flight was not direct. It, it, he had to change planes in Atlanta, and they found him going around the baggage <laughs> claims in circles. And I speak to the <laughs> the person in baggage claim in Atlanta, and they said, "Well, we can put him on the next flight to Charleston, but he's been going around in circles here for quite a while. He looks really weak. I'm not so sure. I don't know too much about animals. I'm not so sure he'll survive it." So what do you do? You're a first time producer. Now what do you do? I hired a limousine and had him limoed from Atlanta, Georgia to Charleston, South Carolina in order to make sure he got to the set on time in proper health. And we shot the scene and he was a triumph. Um, but I went way over budget on that opossum, but trying to figure out on the limited budget we had, what do you do when you're faced with conundrums like this and how do you deal with it? And you got to be quick on your feet and you got to make decisions. And my book, Batman's Batman, is about the 13 P's of producing, the different steps it takes that you have to deal with when you're producing. And, uh, and, and it's all part of the process. I just find it funny because the, the next movie the opossum goes to is going to be like, I'm not in first class. You know, come on. <laughs> Where's the limo? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It goes right to their heads all the time. Yeah, and it's probably fire his handler. I want a new handler. You, you had me up there. Now, now I'm down here. Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> now, a lot of people don't realize you did American Playhouse, The Three Sovereigns for Sarah. And I remember seeing that years ago when it came out on uh, PBS. And you had an amazing all-star cast. I mean, it, it, it was a miniseries for TV, but you have a cast that would headline any movie. Yeah. I mean, Vanessa, Vanessa yeah. Redgrave, Kim Hunter, Patrick McGowan. It's, it's amazing what the people you have. It was incredible. It was a great, great, great experience. I am a history major and a history buff. Just like comic books, just like Batman, it is one of the passions of my life. And I always wanted to do something in the field of history. And I was one of those people that was upset when I saw on CBS, the George Washington miniseries. I saw, you know, one soldier with a Rolex. Uh, I saw other soldiers wearing designer sneakers. Uh, I spotted one 747 in the background of one scene. And I'm going, why does it have to be that way? 
Why does it have to be so sloppy? Why doesn't anyone care about the facts? And we set out with this saying, okay, we're going to make this 100% historically accurate. And the research that went into the script writing, um, we then hired the two leading historians in the world of the Salem Witch Trials of 1692. We filmed on all the extant locations that are still there. Our historians found the original blueprints for the building of the Salem Meeting House, which is where the trials took place from 1672, and we rebuilt it uh, in Danvers, Massachusetts, um, on the Rebecca Nurse Estate. And it, it was an incredible, incredible positive experience. My office during the course of that, when I was still line producing, was the second floor of the House of Seven Gables. I mean, you talk about atmosphere. My roommate and uh, assistant editor was Chip Cronkite, whose father was a guy by the name of Walter Cronkite, who uh, on occasion would come over from Martha's Vineyard on his boat and pick us up on a Sunday and take us out for a little jaunt. Um, it, it, it was terrific, and it was historically accurate. And just having the opportunity to work with people like Vanessa Redgrave, and Patrick McGowan was one of my great heroes. To this day, the prisoner remains one of my top three favorite TV series of all time. It's right up there with Twilight Zone and the adventures of Superman uh, for me. And um, to be able to become friends with Patrick McGowan, and he also had Secret Agent and so many other things. Um, I took him to dinner one night. I said, to Patrick, here's the deal. I'm going to take you to the greatest restaurant on the North Shore, uh, north of Boston. But you're going to have to sit and hear what I think everything in the prisoner symbolized and what it meant. He said, fair enough. So we go to dinner and I say, okay. So first of all, he's John Drake's secret agent from your prior TV series. Because the theme song says they've given you a number and taken away your name. And now you're number six. And then I go on and on and on. And he goes, Michael, that was fascinating, but completely wrong. He said, first of all, that damn secret agent man theme song, I hated it. He goes, that, that was not part of our show in, in Britain. He said, that was added in by you Americans. That has nothing to do with anything. He goes, and what makes you think that the guy was a spy? I go, wait a minute, what are you talking about? He said, uh, why could he not have been a scientist and the secrets were scientific secrets. And then I sat there blown away. And of course, I then had to have my wife send up to me on the set my Betamax collection of the 17 episodes in order of The Prisoner so I could rewatch the whole thing from that perspective, which I did and realized he was just BSing me. <laughs> I mean, it had nothing to do with anything. Um, it was great. Uh, I tried to get James Mason to come back and play uh, the role of the uh, magistrate, chief magistrate. I actually had the opportunity to talk to him from his retirement home in Switzerland. Um, uh, we had tried to get Greer Garson out of retirement to do, to do some stuff. It, it was just a great experience. I will say when, when you said Superman, of course, one of the actresses you had was in Superman, the movie as Ma Kent, you know, and it, it, I find that. Ellis Baxter. Yep, I find that just ironic, you know, because Batman, Superman, here you have Ma Kent and you're, you know, it's just a lot of, a lot of little weird connections. 
Oh, yeah. And I had just finished. Yeah, I got involved very, very early on at the birth of interactive technology when they were just starting things like laser video discs and uh, competing systems. And I did a uh, video disc, an interactive video disc with Noel Neal and Jack Larson, uh, who played Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen on the Superman TV series. So I got to spend some really, really great quality time with them for about a week. Uh, while we were shooting this thing and heard every old story you could imagine of the shooting uh, and making of the, the Superman TV series. I was in heaven with them. And uh, other ones who, who were working with us was Bob Denver from Gilligan's Island and Dobie Gillis, Gary Owens from uh, Rowan and Martin's Lampin, Fabian. Um, it was quite a collection of golden oldies, and we had a ball. That's that's the fun part is when you get to work with these people and have a chance to talk with them and hear those behind the scenes stories. Which is part of what I like doing these interviews is you get we get to share this with other people to spread the wealth, so to speak, so it doesn't just disappear into the mist. Right, and and also getting the facts from them about the murder of George Reeves. Oh, oh. Are you going to say any more on that? Or are you just going to leave us all with a cliffhanger? I think that'll be in the third book. I'll make it a trilogy. Um, Eddie Mannix. Look him up. Look him up. I will. Now, my both my children, my older two children, want me to, I think now you know where I'm going to go with this next question, or the topic. Where in the world is Carmen San Diego? You know, because a lot of people don't realize you help get that puppy out there and stuff like that. And that, that thing has been around for a long time. Was it like two, almost 300 episodes? Uh, I won the Emmy Award for Best Kids Series from that. Um, and, and the way it started was my son, I want to guess he was in first grade, something like that. And it was back to school night. And I went and I said to the his computer teacher, um, this game that you've created for these kids, I've been doing it at home with him. It's fabulous. He's learning geography. He's learning how to read maps. This is terrific. She goes, oh, Mr. Uslan, that's not my game. That's actually a very popular new computer game. I go, a computer game? And she said, yes. Um, I said, do you have it here? So she showed it to me. And I see Broderbun. And I look them up and I see they're in San Francisco. The next morning, I am on the phone with executives at Broderbun and I introduced myself. I said, I want to buy the rights to uh, where in the world is Carmen San Diego to bring to television. And um, the, the following day I was on a plane to San Francisco and we made arrangements to, uh, to get the rights that we needed and then get this thing going. And uh, it, it was a great experience and um, one that I think has impacted a lot of people along the way. Um, yeah, again, it's about taking passions in life. And I have a master's in urban education. When I went to work at DC Comics, one of the first jobs they assigned me to, because I was a co- the, only, the world's only college professor of comic books, they assigned me to work on a program there with researchers from the Graduate School of Education at Harvard. And we developed a thing called edugraphics. And edugraphics was using Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman comic books specially made to teach learning disabled, um, slow readers, and English as a second language students how to read or to motivate them to read. 
And we were enormously successful with this. And they sent me out to teachers' conventions to get support for this. And I felt I needed credentials. So I actually went back to school and got my master's in urban education and then appeared before the Board of Education in New York City and did my pitch. And they adopted our program as a supplementary reading program for New York City. And that was, that was huge. That was a big early triumph. Um, so education has always been part of my life. As I remember watching it with them, and I always loved Lynn Figpen as the chief. You know, she, just uh, something about her, her personality, her voice, it was just, you know, she drew you right in. Yeah, you know, there is a live-action version of Carmen Sandiego. There is an animated version of Carmen Sandiego. And, and both lived comfortably together, which was terrific. Now, I'm curious about one thing. I know you have a lot of film rights for a lot of different characters that we mentioned. Um, like with Batman, is there something we have to keep doing certain things to renew it, or do you have it locked, stock, and barrel now? Locked, stock, and barrel. Oh, that's that's what I wanted to hear because I I feel like it's in good hands. <laughs> well, you know, at the end of the day, it's he who he who has the money makes the final decisions, and that's the way that that, that this whole thing goes. And uh, you do the best you can to advocate for Batman to defend Batman, to protect Batman, to be Batman's Batman. Um, and at the end of the day, it's the decision uh, of the highest ranks that decides where to put their X hundreds of millions of dollars and how to spend it. And I respect that. I respect that. No, no. Uh, off, often we've won and won big. Sometimes we've lost and, uh, and it was the best thing that could have happened to me because Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it always has led back to, um, success and satisfaction. And to make sure those listeners understand, like with Swamp Thing and Batman, it's not just the rights to them, but it's the rights to those that appear in their comics, like the characters that Correct. are started in there. Yeah. It's, it, it's the characters, the stories, everything that's in the comics themselves. Yeah. Now, uh, do you have any other like big name Film rights, to, like character, you know, I think what the spirit is one that you have the rights to or not? I do not have the rights to the spirit. Um, I do have, well, actually, I can't say quite yet, but there will be some announcements coming out. Uh, I'm going to say second half of 2022. Well, a little a bit too early for me to talk. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to press you on that. I don't. I don't try to catch people in those things where they can get stuck with those non-disclosure agreements and stuff. You know, my thing is, I'm a patient person. I can wait, even if it comes out early 2023 or whatever. I'll eventually find out. So that's, I'm a patient. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and and that's the way it has to go, really. Um, but I'm always in the trenches every day. People say, "What exactly is your job?" And I say, "Well, it's very easy. Every day I report to a sandbox and I play with my favorite toys." That's what I do for a living. Now, one of the things I want to ask you about, I'm really curious. I'm hoping the film rights for some one DC character I've, I've always loved, those, those lesser known, Ragman. The Joe Kubert uh, creation. Yes. And um, I, I have no idea what they're doing with that, if anything. I really don't. Um, that's a question you might want to ask the good folks over at DC. I was just curious if you had the rights to them or whatever. And I was thinking, Oh, I could just see, no. you know, it's always a little hope. 
Yeah, I, th- that is not within my purview. Um, but, you know, I have had great situation. I was the originating producer of Shazam. I set that up at New Line, uh, worked on that for over 10 years. And, um, and, and now that's really developing well with Black Adam and Shazam 2 coming. Uh, very proud of having started that because Otto Binder, who created Black Adam, and, um, and the Marvel family, co-created the Marvel family with C.C. Beck, um, he was one of my first, he was my first mentor in the comic book industry. He opened all the doors to me uh, and explained how it all worked and the whole history of it. He put me in touch with C.C. Beck and starting in seventh grade, I had a weekly correspondence with C.C. Uh, he put me in touch with uh, the two main editors of Captain Marvel in the, in the 40s and 50s. So everything Fawcett, um, I studied. And, and got all the answers from people who were there at the time. And, and that was a great thing. So I had the burden of wanting to make sure that the integrity of C.C. Beck and Otto Binder and Bill Parker, who co-created Captain Marvel himself, uh, were carried forth. And um, there's, one mo- there's one animated movie that you had your hands involved with, and that was Turok. Of course, you know, my last name being Turok, I kind of go with Turok, Son of Stone. <laughs> yeah, we were working with Classic Media, which owned the Gold Key characters. And um, among other great characters, my God, they had the Lone Ranger, and I think they had the Green Hornet, Sergeant Preston of the Yukon. They had the Harvey comics characters. Um, they, ha- they had a gold mine there of, of great characters. So we had the opportunity to do an R-rated Turok. Uh, because we felt at that time, you know, the video games were, were out and they were violent and appealing to a certain audience and had gotten great success. So it had to work for that audience as opposed to a kiddie audience. And when you're talking about a guy fighting dinosaurs, um, you know, there's going to be some bloodletting there one way or another. So, um, you know, we really went at it and it's, it's got a kind of an uh, anime style to it uh, in, in the process. Um, and that was fun to work on with those guys. That was um, Eric Ellenbogen and um, uh, who else? Was oh, there were just so many, many great people that were working on that. It was really, really a wonderful experience. I just remember, it, to me, when I was watching it, it reminded me of um, like a heavy metal episode extended for the full-length movie with the animation style and the, um, as you said, the gore. It is R and that kind of stuff. But it had to, but it, to tell that particular story, it fit better for it. Now, here's a cosmic coincidence. The main creative guy we were working with at the company was Evan Bailey. Uh, And Evan was driving this project forward. Guess who Evan Bailey's grandfather was? A guy named Bernard Bailey, who co-created with Jerry Siegel, the co-creator of Superman, co-created the Spectre. And when you want to talk about superheroes that are horrific, um, nobody tops the Spectre. They, uh, he also co-created Starman, by the way. Uh, so he, so Evan comes from an illustrious DC background. That's just amazing. And there's one thing I want to tie in. This, you are a writer for Little Orphan Annie's A Very Animated Christmas. And the reason I'm bringing this up, you were told by an executive when you were trying to pitch Batman back in, you know, the first one, oh, we did Annie. 
And it, you know, this is the same thing. And here I find it kind of ironic that here you are writing <laughs> years later, <laughs> it goes like full circle. You know, you went from Andy B thought, Oh, it doesn't work. It's only in the funny pages. And suddenly you're the writer for. Well, it was great. The way it came about, I was doing an awful lot with Tribune uh, out of Chicago and they were, they were great to work with. And we brought back Terry and the Pirates to modernize Terry and the Pirates. Uh, and I got to work with the brothers Hildebrand who did the art. We did the syndicated comic strip daily and Sunday for, um, let's see, it was for 53 weeks, 53 weeks to reintroduce the cast and everything to, uh, to a modern day world and high tech piracy. And we had a deal for a TV series um, that, as I reported in Batman's Batman, aborted right at the end. We had everything in hand to do it. But I've been working with Tribune, and they said, you know, there's never been an Annie cartoon. Is, could you do like an Annie cartoon? I said, you know, it would be great to uh, get her feet wet with a holiday special, like a Christmas special. So we put together the deal and I wrote and we produced it and we did it with Stephanie Graziano up in Vancouver. Uh, we did the animation and it was, uh, yeah, Little Orphan Annie's very animated Christmas. And uh, that was a lot of fun working in Vancouver was terrific. I just thought that the irony of it all was just kind of funny when uh, the, the humor wasn't lost. I mean, I was looking at your IMD thing. It's, oh, I got to talk about this because <laughs> for people, if you read the book, it all fit together. Yeah, it, it, it does. It's, my life is a jigsaw puzzle, but when, when you lay out the pieces correctly, you see how they all fit. And, and one last question before we talk, we talk a little bit more about your book is, I have to ask, what was it like working or dealing with Michael Goff? Because I just loved him from the Hammer days and so on, and he was Alfred in four different Batman movies. Dignified... Um, is it proper to say elegant when you're talking about a gentleman? Um, old school. Uh, it re he reminded me a lot of great filmmaker, Philip Leacock, British filmmaker, who was our director on Three Sovereigns for Sarah. Philip directed Three Sovereigns for Sarah when he was in his mid-70s. And it was his last production that he directed. Uh, mid to even late, it might have been his late 70s. And I just thought the two of them had similar personalities. You know, you got on the set, everybody acted like a gentleman and carried themselves in a certain way that impact the crew. And, and, and it, it creates an ambiance there of, uh, of a degree of respect and how you do your job and how you react to things and, it, it, it keeps things on a calm, civil level. It just permeates a set. That's just wonderful to hear. I know there's a, a friend of mine, we both do a little hammer podcast on the side, and I had to ask about Michael Goff because he would kill me if I didn't ask about Michael <laughs> Goff. <laughs> also does great commercials, right? Yeah. Well, he, I mean, he, I think he always on did. Star. Didn't he do the OnStar Batman commercial? Wasn't that he did? He did one of the commercials. I'd have to look that up. You might have. I mean, that's, you stumped me. He, he, <laughs> he definitely did one of them for Batman or Batman Returns. I think it was OnStar, but I'm not 100% sure. I, he might have. I'm, I'm somewhere you're bringing his memory back. And I think, oh, well, I'll see if I can find it on YouTube, you know, and let's see. Because oh. some of these things always pop up on YouTube. But 
for listeners, if you want to hear more about Michael Duslin's life, you can get the audio books, you know, for the, the boy who loved the boy who loved Batman and Batman's Batman, or you can get the old fashioned paper copies and stuff like that. There's eag versions. There's t- it, basically, I think you got it covered every which way. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best way to work these days. And for those that want to know where to go, if you go to our Facebook page or the link in the show notes, I'll have a link there. It'll take you right to Red Lightning Books, and that way you can follow the links there to either buy from their site or to the other sites that are offering the um, the books themselves. But I, I want to thank you for joining me. This, this was a pleasure to talk to you. I hope we can have you come back again to talk maybe just about movies you want to talk about, like movies you like. I would love to do that. I am a fan of cinema. Um, you know, I've done on air with Turner Classic Movies, and every year I've been a co-host of the Turner Classic Movie Film Festival in Los Angeles, which is coming up in about week after next. And I am thrilled that I'm going to be co-hosting uh, two films: one on opening night, which is Eddie Bracken and Hail the Conquering Hero, a Preston Sturgis uh, gem. And on closing, I'm going to be doing After the Thin Man with William Powell and Myrna Loy, one of the greatest movie series ever, ever made. Um, so just working with classic golden age Hollywood films is a, is a pure joy for me. I, I'm looking forward to watching that now to see your introductions. Is it is you doing just the intro or like when you do the, or are you also at the end too? Uh, no, we do the intros, and then at the end, the audience rushes off to the next film they want to see at the film festival. So uh, everybody at the end of every screening is in a hurry to get to the next movie. Oh, I love film festivals. So, yeah, I know it's like it's, it's wonderful. But this was wonderful, too, to have you talk with me. I want to thank you again. Thanks, Stephen. Look forward to doing it again. And um, we've, there's a lot of great projects coming up. Um, you know, in the in the future, we've got the return of Michael Keaton, which is so exciting. And, uh, you know, that might be a good time for me to come back and us kind of do a little chit chat. That would be, I think, I think, I think it, we could say it's a verbal agreement. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Hello, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Michael Uslin. And again, if you want to purchase any of his books, they're in the show notes or the links to it. Again, you can go on Amazon. You can go to many different places to find um, the, the books that we mentioned, but they'll be in the show notes. As we'll let you know, our next episode is going to be the second episode for Hammerama, the series I'm doing with Alistair Hughes. And I uh, hope everybody listens to that one. Again, give us feedback to any of our episodes on diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Look forward to hearing from everybody. Everybody have, hope you have a good day. And to take us out, we're going to listen to that commercial that Michael brought up about On Star with Michael Goff. Good evening, Batman. Alfred. I've stepped up safety in the Batmobile, sir. Really? Should a villain steal it, someone will track it. If your airbag goes off, an advisor will assist you. If you're stranded, satellites will help locate you. And where have you put all these things? Just press the OnStar button, sir. Well done, Alfred. My pleasure, sir. OnStar, how can I help you, Batman?